Well, good morning, New City. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Last week in Luke's unfolding story of the early church, we saw a mob of Jews stopped by Roman soldiers in their attempts to lynch Paul uh, right in the temple courts. Uh, but the Sanhedrin was unable to convict the apostle of any offense against the law of Moses. And then after the trial, Roman soldiers moved the apostle Paul to their own barracks for his safety. He was in danger of being uh, ripped apart, Luke says, torn to pieces. Yet, it, yeah, so it was, a, it was a close shave, but the Apostle Paul, he's had close shaves before. So we might think that all of this drama sort of constitutes a temporary hiccup in Paul's missionary and, and church planting plans. And now he's free to go on his way. Uh, but then we read this, Acts 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But it will be as a prisoner that Paul bears witness to Jesus in Rome. And in our text today, we'll consider some of the providential steps that take the apostle to Rome to proclaim, to proclaim Christ in Nero's courts. Uh, there are three. There are three providential moves here. An assassination attempt that moves Paul to Caesarea, uh, his trial before Governor Felix, and his trial before Governor Festus. And these trials before Felix and Festus, and then later before King Agrippa, we'll consider that next week. Uh, they have a threefold purpose. You can see this in your handout. Uh, Paul has the opportunity to defend himself against false charges before the highest authority in the province and prove that Christianity is no threat to Rome. Secondly, to continue his defense of Christianity before Jewish opponents. And then third, to bear witness to Christ before the two governors, Felix and Festus, thus continuing to fulfill Jesus' prophecy of Luke 21, 12 to 13. I'll read that for you. They will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. So with that, that big picture in mind, let's just dive right in. Acts chapter 23, verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So it, it never stops. It's like we're reading the script for Die Hard or something here. Verse 13, more than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. And, and then they prevail on the chief priest to persuade the Sanhedrin to petition the Roman commander to cooperate with them. Uh, the same tribune who rescued Paul from the mob. His name is Claudius Lysias. Verse 15. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So as long as Paul's in Jerusalem, he's in extreme danger. He's in the lion's den. Uh, but of course, even the most careful and cunning human plots can't succeed if God opposes them. And on this occasion, God's providential intervention involved Paul's nephew, of all people. Look at verse 16. 
But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. I, isn't it tantalizing to read little details like this about Paul's family life, his sister, her son, right? He, I mean, Paul is a real human being. You know, he had, the man has a family, uh, but we have no further information about uh, his sister or his nephew. Were they believers? We don't, we don't know. Uh, did they have some association with the Jewish leaders, which made it natural for his, uh, his sister's son to learn about this plot without raising any, anybody's suspicions? Uh, Luke doesn't say. What we do know is that news of the assassination's plot spread from Paul's nephew to Paul, from Paul to a centurion, from the centurion to the tribune, the commander, Claudius Lysias, who then hears it from the youth's own lips. So look at verse 19. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. And doubtless, remembering Paul's Roman citizenship, uh, the commander decides on immediate and resolute, decisive action. Verse 23, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Uh, provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken uh, safely uh, to Governor Felix. So this is incredible. 470 soldiers. That's almost half the force of the Jerusalem garrison. It's an overwhelming force. I just, I just love this, this picture of gratuitous abundance, right? I mean, isn't the Lord wonderful? Uh, Lysias, the tribune, he's thinking, okay, Paul, the Roman citizen, he is well protected now. Jesus is thinking, my apostle must testify about me before kings and governors and before Nero himself. As for the 40 men who took this hunger strike, uh, well, they just, they just signed their own death warrants. Uh, although perhaps, as, as Jesus mentions in Matthew 23, 17, and 18, they only swore by the temple or the altar and not by the gold of the temple or the gift on the altar. So their oath means nothing and they can break it. We don't know. Verse 24, provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And, and the governor's residence was in Caesarea. That's the provincial capital of Judea. Now, the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, he writes to Felix about Paul, or more accurately, he writes about himself and how awesome he has been in this whole situation. Nine of the principal verbs in Lysias's letter are in the first person singular. The, the, the tribune is the star of this show. Verse 26, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix. And just just a, an offhand comment here. I, I like how uh, letters were written in the first century right off the bat. Who's writing this letter that you put that first as opposed to at the bottom of page 12 or something like this? This was John writing this letter. It's actually no Claudius Lysias. He's writing it to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. And notice how many times he says, I, I, I. This man was seized by the Jews. 
and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. And uh, just notice, too, how, how Lysias conveniently fails to mention his original misunderstanding uh, that Paul was an Egyptian terrorist and his attempt to have him scourged before discovering that he was a Roman citizen. He just sweeps it under the carpet and moves on. Verse 28, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him before their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, uh, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So, uh, so the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. That's 56 kilometers away. Paul's riding a horse, remember. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him uh, while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So Governor Felix, he reads the letter and inquires about Paul's province, just to be sure that he had jurisdiction. And then he determines to hear the case himself when Paul's accusers arrive. In the meantime, the apostle is kept under guard in the magnificent palace of Herod the Great. That's the palace that he had built for himself which is now the Praetorium, that's the governor's official residence. Luke doesn't explain what kept under guard entails, but we can be sure that as a Roman citizen and with, with no criminal charges to face as yet, uh, Paul was not ill-treated. So he's not being held in a dank, dark dungeon, right? Like in Ben-Hur. And so now with chapter 24, we come to Paul's trial before Felix. This is his third trial in a series of five. Uh, so that's how Luke sets things up. Three glorious missionary journeys, epic missionary journeys, followed by five trials. So we're moving along a pace here. This is trial number three. And the man presiding over this trial is Governor Marcus Antonius Felix. The thing is, Governor Felix is a moral wimp. He's a man in authority but he has no moral vision authorizing him to take decisive action. I mean, all the power is in his hands here. So uh, obviously, too, God knew that about Felix when he appointed him governor. And it's the same thing with Pontius Pilate, too. <laughs> so chapter 24, verse 1. Five days, after, five days later, the high priest Ananias, and he's the man who ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth, and uh, that Paul called this man a whitewashed wall, you'll recall. Uh, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. And as a trained and experienced professional lawyer, Tertullus begins with what's called a captatio benevolentiae. My Latin pronunciation is correct there, and endeavor to capture the judge's goodwill. This was standard stuff, and traditionally it was complementary to the point of hypocrisy. I mean, he really lays it on thick here. <laughs> uh, and the Jews had no love necessarily for Governor Felix or any governor, and, and all, often actually it includes a promise of brevity. So that's what you see here. So he begins We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. 
and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. So that's all standard stuff. And then the lawyer, he goes on to enumerate three charges against the Apostle Paul. Number one, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. And, and this is a very serious accusation. It has political overtones. There were many Jewish agitators at this time. You had messianic pretenders, people who threatened the peace of Rome. That's a serious charge. Charge number two, he, Paul, is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And the word sect means sect, party, school. It was applied to both Sadducees and Pharisees and as traditions within Judaism. Though commentators, this is very interesting, think how it's being used here. And then later in chapter 28, verse 22, people everywhere are talking against this sect, inclines the rendering toward heretical sect. The third charge, verse six, and even tried to desecrate the temple. And that's a reference to the belief that Paul had brought Trophimus the Ephesian within a prohibited precinct of the Jerusalem temple. And anyone guilty of temple desecration in the Roman Empire, any temple of any religion, was to be put to death. So we seized him, says Tertullus, which is a, a very dishonest euphemism for what they actually tried to do, which is lynch the Apostle Paul. And then Tertullus concludes his prosecution with a direct appeal to Felix. Obviously, this is a condensed form of what is being said, but verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And Don Carson notes this, when Tertullus encourages Felix to examine Paul, he means more than that Felix should ask a few probing questions. Roman examination of a prisoner was open-ended beating until the prisoner confessed. Roman officers did not have the right to examine a Roman citizen like Paul, but a governor like Felix could doubtless manage to waive the rules now and then. Verse 9, the other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. And now we come to Paul's defense. Paul also begins with a captatio benevolentiae, uh, though it's considerably more moderate than Tertullus's effort. Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. But much more restrained. <laughs> then he proceeds to refute the prosecution's allegations one by one. First, Paul is emphatically not a troublemaker. Verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. See, that was his intent. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove the charges they are now making against me. And now he, he addresses himself to the charges that he was a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Verse 14, however, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. The way. Isn't that a, a delightful expression for first century Christianity? The way. Maybe we should do what we can using our, our global influence, New City, <laughs> to bring this back into vogue, the way. 
uh, th there might be a couple of illusions here. One is that Christianity is more than a belief system, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a way of living. It's a way of life. Uh, moreover, it provides a way to God, a way to be forgiven and accepted by the living God. And, and that way is Jesus Christ himself. He, he says this about John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Verse 14, however, I admit I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets and have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Those are some very important verses. Uh, do, you, you need to hear the, the Jewish affirmations, the law of Moses affirmations. Uh, Paul worships the same God, right? The God of our ancestors. He believes the same truths, the law and the prophets. He shares the same hope, the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And he cherishes the same ambition to keep a clear conscience. That, all this is to say, Paul is not a theological innovator, right? He is loyal to the ancestral faith. He, he's not sectarian. He's not a heretical deviant. He stands squarely within mainstream Judaism. And, and that's because the way Christianity enjoys direct continuity with the Old Testament. The scriptures bear witness to Jesus as the one in whom God's promises have been fulfilled. Uh, what does Paul write? He hasn't written it yet, but what does he write in Romans 3.21? But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Or Jesus in Matthew 5.17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's the same thing here. Paul says, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law, and is it written in the prophets. And, and that's true of Paul, and it's true of us, brothers and sisters, right? The law is the critical test that points to everything that we believe as New Covenant Christians, but it's not the substance of everything that we believe. The third accusation against Paul is that he has profaned or desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, but that's not the way it went down at all. Verse 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem, to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. And that's because it was certain Asian Jews. They were the ones who had interfered with him and caused a riot. Just as, uh, just when he was demonstrating his love for his nation and respect for its laws, uh, why weren't these men in court today pressing their charges? Verse 20, or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Because in fact, the Pharisees had found Paul innocent of any crime, hadn't they? Yeah, uh, unless it was just one thing, verse 21, as I shuddered as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. 
only the Sadducees had thought he was guilty. And, and that's only because of their theological stance towards the resurrection. They don't believe in a resurrection. And, and now Governor Felix's moral wimpiness comes to the fore. I mean, this, this case could be dismissed right now. Verse 22, then Felix, who is well acquainted with the way, perhaps through his Jewish wife, Drusilla, uh, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. See, that, that is total compromise. But Felix can't convict Paul. On what charge? Lysias the tribune found no fault in him. He's already written to, to Felix in his letter saying, I could find no fault. It had to do with their law and stuff. It had nothing to do for the death penalty or imprisonment. And, and the Sanhedrin hadn't convicted Paul either, nor had to tell us the lawyer been able to substantiate his charges. Uh, the case should be right now thrown out and Paul sent off on his merry way a free man. But Felix is unwilling to release Paul, partly because we see in verse 26, he hopes for a bribe. And partly because he wants to curry favor with the Jews in verse 27. Uh, it's politically expedient for Governor Felix to do nothing. He's a moral wimp. So Felix postpones his verdict on the specious pretext that he needs the tribune's advice. Meanwhile, verse 23, he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. And, and the Romans had different degrees of imprisonment. And because Paul's a Roman citizen and he hasn't been convicted of any offense, Felix's instructions are that he should be given custodia libera. That means he's left unguarded, uh, but his friends enjoy free access to him, though he is in chains. And Paul mentions his chains in verse 28, or, or chapter 28, rather. And, and, but using our, our sanctified imaginations, we can suppose that Luke visited the apostle and, and Philip, the evangelist, along with his four daughters who lived in Caesarea, together with others who were members of that local church. But there would be no further public hearing two years. In the meantime, Luke relates an interesting story of frequent private encounters between Paul and Felix. Verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Which is very interesting. Uh, Drusilla is the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the king who was struck by God and died of a, an internal infection of worms in Acts chapter 12. Uh, this means Drusilla, Felix's wife, is the sister of King Agrippa II and Bernice. The three of them are siblings. Luke introduces us to King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice later in chapter 25. Uh, they're actually, uh, it's pretty disgusting, but they're an incestuous couple. Uh, if you look up sinful family dysfunction in the dictionary, you'll find a family tree of the Herodian dynasty. Uh, but Drusilla, the youngest sister, the one not in an incestuous relationship, had, had a reputation for ravishing youthful beauty. Which, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, is why Felix with the aid of a Cypriot magician, seduced her from her rightful husband and secured her for himself when she was 16 years old. She was, in fact, the governor's third wife. 
And, and this highly <laughs> morally questionable behavior may be why Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And, and why that disturbs Felix and causes him to dismiss the apostle. So look at verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. It's amazing. Paul, Felix enjoys talking with Paul. He, he even trembles before his message, but he always dismisses the apostle at the critical moment. For two years, Felix is torn between a desire to repent and a desire for a bribe. I wonder in eternity how Felix will assess those two years. In a way, Felix represents the many people in this world, and you meet them fairly consistently if you're a faithful gossiper of the gospel. The many people who are disturbed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and at some level know it's true, yet who never become Christians. Do you know people like that in your life? Verse 27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Now, if there ever was in English a name that sounds like a villain, it's Porcius Festus. <laughs> that name always cracked. It sounds like festering pork to my mind. I don't know. But uh, this is all a matter of public record. Uh, Felix was summoned to Rome in AD 59 when the Jewish leaders made a case against him for his management and poor handling of a conflict between Jews and Syrians in Caesarea. Well, that's going to come up again. But that, that may be where verse 27b comes into play. But Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, because that, so he left them in prison. Uh, he may have thought if he left the Sanhedrin's public enemy number one in prison in Caesarea, it might help his chances facing these Jewish accusations in Rome. Regardless, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But the change in governor from Felix to Festus brings no immediate improvement to Paul's condition, yet God remains in control throughout. And, and it's in this chapter, in chapter 25, that Paul's situation takes a decisive step forward. But let's look quickly at the remaining 11 verses. 25.1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Festus is new to the region, of course. He's still relatively ignorant of its political, its religious dynamics, but he seems determined to get off on the right, on the right foot. So a mere three days after arriving in Caesarea, he travels up to Jerusalem to meet the local Jewish authorities. He, he could have summoned them to Caesarea. Um, he could have delayed his visit, uh, but off he goes, and he is promptly informed by the chief priests and the Jewish leaders what a terrible guy Paul is. 
uh, those men expressed their desire to have Paul brought to Jerusalem to stand trial. But in reality, they're planning a murderous ambush. Verse 3, they requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. And, and Festus isn't part of that conspiracy, but that's you're seeing behind the scenes what the Jews are thinking. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. So it, it's just more of the same, right? A big nothing burger. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. And then for some reason that's not apparent, except that he wished to do the Jews a favor. Festus gives Paul the option of being tried before him in Jerusalem. Verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? So it's a compromise solution, right? Paul, Paul's trial would occur in Jerusalem to satisfy the Jews, but he would stand trial before Festus, which means the Roman court would protect Paul's rights as a citizen. Now, there's no hint of Paul being tipped off to this planned ambush, but Two years earlier, he had been warned of a similar plot, and it wouldn't take much to figure out that such a plot was likely being hatched again. I mean, Jerusalem is the lion's den right now for the Apostle Paul. If Paul agrees with Festus's suggestion, he'll be murdered. If Paul declines, he appears obstreperous <coughs> and arrogant. Plus, he's been shut up in Caesarea for two years now. Things need to start moving, and Paul, Paul knows where he needs to go. Right? Jesus has already told him in a vision. And so Paul exercises the right of every Roman citizen in the first century. He appeals to Caesar. Verse 10, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have, done, I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however... I am guilty of doing anything deserving death. I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And this, of course, is the judicial equivalent of appealing to the Supreme Court. But humanly speaking, it's a desperate move. Emperor Nero did not take kindly to frivolous suits. And he was already known to be corrupt and intoxicated by his own power. Yet by this means, as we see in the rest of the book, Paul finally arrives in Rome. But just as Joseph, so just as Joseph was brought to Egypt's palaces by way of slavery and prison, so Paul is brought to testify for King Jesus before the mightiest human authorities by way of prison and corrupt justice. And indeed, uh, how did Jesus gain his place at his father's right hand? It went through the same kind of corrupt proceedings with another governor, 
Yeah. Verse 12, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up our story again. Amen.